If you enjoyed these podcasts, check out Byron Reese's newest book. It's about artificial intelligence and covers all the topics addressed on Voices in AI. It's called The Fourth Age, Smart Robots, Conscious Computers, and the Future of Humanity. And it's available now wherever fine books are sold. This is Voices in AI brought to you by GigaOM. I'm Byron Reese. Today, our guest is Hillary Hunter. She is an IBM fellow, and she holds an MS and a PhD in electrical engineering from the University of Illinois' Urbana-Champaign. Welcome to the show, Hillary. Thank you. It's such a pleasure to be here today. Looking forward to this discussion, Byron. So I always like to start off with my Rorschach test question, which is, what is artificial intelligence? And why is it artificial? You know, it's a great question. And, you know, one of the things that, that, that I always do, um, I, my background is in hardware and in systems and in the actual compute substrate for AI. Um, so one of the things I like to do is sort of de- demystify what AI is. There, there are certainly a lot of definitions out there. Um, but I like to take people to the, to the math that's actually happening in the background. So when we talk about AI today, especially like in the popular press and such, when people talk about the things that AI is doing, you know, be it understanding medical scans or, you know, labeling people's pictures on a social media platform or understanding speech or translating language, um, all those things that are considered core functions of AI today are actually deep learning. Um, which is meaning using many layer neural networks to solve a problem. Um, There's also other parts of AI, though, that are much less discussed in the popular press, you know, which include knowledge and reasoning and creativity and all these other aspects. And, you know, the reality is where we are today with AI um, is we're seeing a lot of productivity from the deep learning space. and, And ultimately, those are, you know, big math equations that are solved with lots of matrix math. Um, and we're basically creating a big equation um, that matches in its parameters to a set of data that it was fed. Um, so, so, yeah. Go ahead. No, no, that's that's. Go ahead. So, would you say though that that is actually that it's actually intelligent, or that it is emulating intelligence, or would you say there's no there's no difference between those two things? Yeah, so I'm 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 really quite pragmatic as you just heard from you know me saying okay let's go talk about what the math is that's happening and and right now you know where we're at with AI is um, you know relatively narrow capabilities you know um, AI is is good at doing things like classification or answering yes and no kind of questions on data that it was fed and so in some sense it's mimicking intelligence in that it is you know taking in sort of human sensory data um, a computer can take in what I mean by that is it can take in visual data or auditory data um, you know people are even working on you know uh, sensory data um, you know bells and things like that um, but you know basically a computer can now take in things that we would consider sort of human process data so visual things and auditory things um, and, you know, make determinations as to what it thinks it is. But, you know, that's certainly far from something that's actually thinking and reading and, and showing intelligence. Well, let me, t- staying squarely in the practical realm, that approach, which is basically let's look at the past and make guesses about the future. Um, what, where, what is the limit of what that can do? I mean, for instance, what well is that approach going to uh, master natural language, for instance? Can you just feed a machine enough printed material and have it be able to converse? 
Like what are, what are some things that that model may not actually be able to do? Yeah, you know, it's interesting because there's a lot of debate, you know, what are we doing today that's different from analytics, right? We had the big data era and we talked about doing analytics on the data. What's new and what's different and why are we calling it AI now? Um, to kind of approach your, your question from that direction, one of the things that AI models do, be it, um, you know, anything from a deep learning model to something that's more in, in the knowledge and reasoning area, um, is that they're much better interpolators. They're much better able to predict on things that they've never seen before. Uh, classical sort of rigid models that people, you know, programmed in computers could answer, oh, I've seen that thing before. Um, with deep learning um, and with more modern AI techniques, um, we are pushing forward into computers and models being able to guess, you know, on things that they haven't exactly seen before. And so in that sense, there's um, a good amount of sort of interpolation and such, you know, whether or not and how AI pushes into, you know, forecasting um, on things well outside the bounds of what it's never seen before, you know, and, and moving AI models, you know, to be effective at uh, types of data, you know, that are very different from what they've seen before um, is the type of, you know, advancements that, you know, people are really pushing for at this point. Why do you think it is that we can train people, even even children, even little children, on just a few examples, even one example of something, and they can generalize well. Like, is that what do you think we're doing that we kind of haven't mastered in in machine speak? Is that just transfer learning, or are we pattern matching in ways that machines don't? Or do you have any any guesses on that? Well, you know, certainly um, learning from small amounts of data um, is, you know, one of the great challenges in this space right now. And, and yes, you, you hit one of the you hit one of the terms on the head, right? Transfer learning, being able to take, you know, knowledge from one domain and apply that ability and that reasoning process onto um, knowledge in a new domain um, is one of the key things that you know people are are working to tackle right now. And I think, you know, frankly, we're in the early days of AI. The the deep learning field really took off. Um, in 2015, um, you know, with some of the publications that happened that time around ImageNet um, and, you know, dropping down into, you know, much more sophisticated, smaller type of models and learning from less data and things like that, um, you know, has really, um, you know, increased in activity in the last, you know, one or two years. But, you know, despite AI having been in sort of the popular press and the movies for a couple of decades, um, the recent, you know, high accuracy capabilities have, have, have only come about in the last few years. So we're really kind of at the cusp of, of um, you know, what will be developed out. Yeah, I mean, so in, the, in this transfer learning thing, if I said, uh, Hillary, I want you to imagine um, a trout swimming in a river, and I want you to imagine that same trout um, in formaldehyde in a laboratory. Um, in what ways are they the same and in what ways are they different? Do they weigh the same? You would say yes. And are they the same temperature? No. Uh, are they the same color? Well, maybe slightly different and so forth. And we do that so effortlessly. It, it's not like we, we, we say, oh, I know what a cat looks like. Therefore, I can figure out what a dog looks like. But in, in a sense, is it possible that like all of our intelligence is, is in one form or another just transferred from something else? And I don't know. I just am baffled by it and intrigued by it that even a little child can do that whole thing with the trout, even with like such a little bit of experience. Do you think we're going to crack how humans do that and instantiate that in a machine or are machines fundamentally going to just go about it completely differently? 
Well, you know, I mean, one of the one of the interesting things I'm going to take you in a slightly different factor there. One of the interesting things is if you if you look at the way humans do it versus the way a computer does it. Um, in addition to the how many how much data did it take and and how pre-processed did that data need to be and how many different forms did that trout picture need to appear in order for the model to recognize it in a bunch of different circumstances. In addition to all that that you're kind of alluding to, there's the question of um, the power efficiency, for example, of that computation. Um, what happens in our brains is incredibly low power <laughs> compared to, you know, um, even if we had a computer model today that could recognize the trout in formaldehyde and the trout in the stream effectively, um, you know, how much power consumption does it take? And that's another area um, that, you know, we've shown some, you know, amazing results using, for example, um, spiking neural networks with the True North and Synapse programs um, of trying to get, you know, much closer to human brain, um, brain level of um, not only accuracy, but also power consumption. Um, but that's another area where, you know, I think that there's a lot of focus right now in getting to, you know, mimicking human brain behavior, not just in accuracy or in situations, but also in, you know, what it costs to do that as well. Right. So I, I, the most powerful computers in the world use 20 million watts and your brain uses 20. And the project you're referring to has built something that, that it was incredibly low, like 10 watts or something. It was, uh, it was, can you just talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So um, the, um, the Synapse program was aiming to do a, you know, brain inspired computing substrate that um, had very, very low power consumption. Specifically, it was capable of 46 billion, you know, synapse operations per second per watt. Um, but the total chip itself, you know, was 70 milliwatts. So it was a tiny, you know, amount of power, you know, for what it was able to do um, with spiking neural networks, sort of brain-inspired, you know, type of processing. Um, and so, you know, these kind, these kind of things and, and sort of saying, okay, today we take, you know, a, a big server with a, with a bunch of GPUs in order to do calculations, um, can compute also be, be scaled down, I think are an, an equally important, you know, part of the overall equation, because otherwise, you know, we're going to, um, you know, be attempting to do, you know, AI and influencing, um, you know, businesses and, and functions within the world, um, but doing it at, at too high of a power consumption. Yeah, the best guesses that I've read posit that 10% of all power consumption in the world right now is computers. And and I guess we would only expect that to go up if we didn't make gains in efficiency, right? Yeah, absolutely. You know, this is, you know, as we as we try to, um, you know, tackle the, 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 the world's large data, right? I mean, I, I like to say that um, what we're doing with AI really is we're trying to fulfill the promises of the big data era as an industry. Um, you know, within sort of IT and computer science, we said, hey, there's, there's big data, there's all this data out there in the world, and it's, and it's growing at exponential rates. It is coming in from sensors on the edge. Um, it is being increasingly produced from handheld devices. Mobile is driving data generation, as well as, you know, companies are getting better at, you know, collecting data structured and unstructured. So we have this massive growth in, you know, in data volume. We all know that story. Um, but the, the big data promise really was to, you know, do analytics on that data, to get insight from that data, to monetize that data, you know, in a way that would, um, you know, result in, you know, better business processes and higher accuracy predictions of, of everything from, you know, credit card fraud to um, risk in, in business scenarios and, and other things like that, as well as, you know, things like patient outcomes in, in medicine, if you can analyze patient history, right? So we had these, we had these promises. Um, and what we are doing largely with AI is to actually get to a place where we can mine 
you know, structured and unstructured data at the same time, where we can get, you know, higher accuracy predictions out of unstructured data and ultimately realize those promises of the big data era. Not just say there's a lot of data, but actually do something about it. Um, And that's a tremendous opportunity for the industry, you know, and it's a tremendous opportunity for, you know, individuals in terms of, you know, like I said, you know, risk and fraud and patient outcomes, things like that. Um, But it does, you know, right now um, drive a new type of IT infrastructure. This, you know, GPU-driven infrastructure is, is, you know, a place that that a lot of folks are investing in to drive these insights. Um, And that's, you know, that's a shift in, it's a shift in IT in terms of investment, in terms of, you know, power consumption and other things like that. You know, in in a two-year period, let's say we project forward two years or back two years, uh, the power of, of computers, thanks to Moore's Law, or the, the speed and price performance doubles. And to your point, the amount of data we can collect and, and, and use in, in, a, in a good way, you know, that, that we can kind of manage, goes up hugely, say tenfold or fifteenfold or something. The third part of the puzzle, which is kind of our, our techniques that we, the alchemy that we use on those two things, is that improving at a similar rate or is it pretty static and the gains we're getting are, well, there's more data and faster computers? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. You know, IDC Research has, you know, projected um, digital data growth at, at a CAGR of something like 42%. Um, you know, that was their prediction a couple years ago. I don't know what the, what the latest data is. But, you know, certainly staggering amounts of data growth. Um, I think that there are kind of a couple of areas that are being cracked into in terms of um, commensurate gains in kind of accuracy or insight capabilities. One is that a lot of that growth was around unstructured data, you know, voices and tweets and images and things like that. Um, and we have seen, you know, within the field of, of deep learning and AI, tremendous improvements in accuracy, um, you know, to the point that, you know, processing ImageNet um, has become, you know, within these, you know, you know several... Um, you know, several digits of percentage, you know, gain for, for, for new types of models just because there was such a huge gain that was accomplished with neural networks, you know, versus classical techniques. I think in speech processing, you know, we're at a place where, you know, those, those, those fields are, you know, arguing about, um, you know, uh, beating human accuracy and sort of what that threshold is. I think everyone is very happy with, you know, the, the tremendous improvements that have been had, you know, on, on unstructured data processing. And, and we certainly see that, you know, even in structured data processing, um, that neural networks can beat out, you know, classic techniques like linear regression, logistic regression. And so I think that there have been, you know, pretty significant gains. And, and if you talk about, you know, does, does the gain in accuracy have to match the CAGR, you know, the growth rate of the data? Um, it usually turns out no, right? So, so as long as you can have a, you know, from an enterprise perspective, especially as long as long as you can have a model that is in some cases even a tenth of a percentage point better than what was there before, um, that can translate to, you know, much better decision making, um, you know, for a business, be it in, you know, process or manufacturing quality or um, other things like that. Um. When you think about like a hurricane, and, and so a hurricane's coming towards the land and you have to figure out like, well, what direction is it going to go? Uh, we all know that at some level, we don't, we, we don't know. You can't predict that far out because the complexity of the system just, like in theory, that's a deterministic system. And in theory, it should be knowable, but it isn't, you, you know, you just end up making a guess. When you think about 
AI and you know the right to know why the AI made the decision that it made, do you think we're in that sort of a case where at some point these systems are going to become so complex that notion of understanding why uh, is just you know just impossible? You know, it's 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 so interesting because you know this is one of the um, the things that you know we're investing and in, and in, you know publishing also publicly a lot of uh, research publications on right now, which is this topic of explainability. Um, you know, you are absolutely right that there's been you know frankly a lot of concern about um, the black box nature of some of these types of models, especially in the deep learning space that. Um, uh, provide higher accuracy and better outcomes, you know, but the, the, the question is, you know, can they also be made explainable? Um, and, you know, there's, there's fascinating things happening in this space, Byron. I mean, I think that um, everything from, you know, can we, you know, understand, you know, actually, uh, you know, a, a sort of like a, a mimic type of a model that explains the predictions, um, you know, of a, of a new model, you know, and, and helps you understand what's going on to, you know, visualization techniques that help you understand for particular pieces of data, um, how the model's, you know, kind of making its decision. Um, you know, I think it's, you know, to addressing bias, right? Um, you know, how do we, um, how do we ensure that models uh, don't produce biased outcomes? Um, and, you know, we've recently been able to see that, you know, in addressing uh, you know, bias and models that by attacking that, um, you know, we, you know, were able to, in a particular modeling area, um, reduce the bias by, you know, nearly an order of magnitude. Um, and so I think we're seeing that you can apply mathematical techniques to the data, um, to the models, to the understanding of the models, um, and try to make them more fundamental. There's certainly a lot of people that are just, you know, throwing on, you know, layers and functions and all these other things into their AI without thinking about that stuff. But I think we're seeing that, you know, if you think about it and plan for it, um, that explainability, you know, bias, um, ethics of models, those kind of things can be, can be addressed. What do you think, how do you think that's all going to shake out? Because there are some things that need to have a high degree of transparency, like medical diagnosis, but then there are things that don't really need any, like a restaurant recommendation, right? Like you don't have to, how do you think that's going to shake out that, that, do you think that's going to be through regulation or just the evolution of, of um, custom or, or what? Who, who's going to decide, well, this doesn't really need to be explainable and, or is that a market force or? Yeah, you know, it's, it's exactly the right, the right question from, um, you know, the perspective of AI you know, maturing, AI becoming more robust and AI becoming more trustable um, a number of the cases that you mentioned, you know, like in a restaurant reservation and such are really kind of consumer facing. We're talking about understanding speech, for example. Um, there's no, you know, financial or ethical or moral loss to um, the, you know, the AI, you know, making a misprediction or something like that. Or maybe some frustration. Um, but, you know, so, so, so maybe some consumer satisfaction <laughs> issues. Um, but, but uh, you know, but from the perspective of, you know, AI becoming something, you know, that drives, you know, productivity, that drives, you know, insight and in, in business data and things like that. Um, I think there are a number of different forces, you know. Um, there are some things that, you know, we have, you know, started around, um, you know, conferences, uh, potential standards um, around AI in terms of, you know, ethics and bias and things like that. I think we'll certainly see um, companies investing in those kind of things so that the consumer knows, you know, to what standard was this, you know, AI intended to, you know, uphold. 
Um, also, you know, things around, you know, explainability in, in some cases, you know, will come into place because of regulations. Like you said, um, you know, in medicine, certainly um, it's important to, you know, follow, you know, regulatory um, as well as privacy uh, policies, but also in other spaces, you know, in, in finance and insurance, you know, there's other forms of regulations and such that, you know, can be, you know, equally as significant, you know, to be able to answer and be accountable to those kind of kind of regulations and such. So I think across, a, you know, a broad variety of enterprise spaces, um, you know, there are things that, um, you know, can be tackled uh, in order to, you know, move from a situation where it has to do with consumer frustration into a situation where it's having to do with, with a business outcome and business decision. Do you think it's possible, though, that the, the, uh, that the entire issue is kind of interesting for people in AI to write about and think about, but in the end, people don't care? And I, w- I would give the example of your credit score. That's a number that affects your life that has total opacity about it. I have no idea how they came up with that number. And they're not even required to tell me how they came up with that number. And that number kind of governs so many things in your life. And yet we just kind of are fine that it's that's just the number, you know, that's, that's just the score. Do you think in the end, that just might be how this shakes out that we'll just have opacity? I think that we're seeing that it's possible to um, provide better than that. Um, and, you know, I suspect that, you know, it's, um, it's likely that, um, you know, better than that will be, you know, required for a lot of, a lot of issues around, you know, like we said, when we're into, you know, bias and, and ethics and, and things like that. Um, you know, it's, it's hard to imagine um, that those things, you know, shouldn't be tackled in a very open way, right? And so I think that, you know, certain things will, certain areas will drive um, continued investment into, you know, removing that opacity, as you were calling it. So can you talk a little bit about yourself and kind of your professional journey and what an IBM fellow is and how that, that, that whole thing? Tell us about you. Absolutely. So, um, you know, an IBM fellow uh, is IBM's highest technical honor, um, but it is also a role. It's a job. Um, and um, there are currently around 100, give or take, um, who are with IBM currently. Um, there's a handful that are appointed every year. Um, so it's a thrill. It's an honor. Um, and um, it's um, really a pleasure to, to be in this kind of role. Um, my journey started uh, after my PhD, as you mentioned, at University of Illinois. I joined IBM Research, um, and over the time that I've been with IBM, I've had a variety of roles, uh, moving kind of increasingly up the stack, as we would say. So we kind of think of a system as, you know, starting down at the bits and the bytes, down in the hardware, um, and, you know, moving up uh, into the software and then the applications and the cloud services and things like that. So over my career, you know, I've, I've essentially um, worked up from the level of the bits and the bytes in, in a technology called Embedded DRAM that I first worked on um, into, you know, other things, you know, around processor design and system design, um, ultimately invested a lot of time in memory technology, um, and now work um, for the last several years in, in AI. And uh, the team that I get to work with is focused on uh, creating system solutions um, that are sort of the compute engine behind creating uh, AI capabilities. So 
um, a lot of my career was spent, you know, in in memory, and and that's fundamentally a big piece of the data side of the whole thing. So AI kind of being the convergence of data and, and access to data and, and, and cleansing of data um, with and movement of data in a system with the compute power and the compute throughput um, of specialized compute engines um, has kind of come together for me. Um, and, and now I get to work on how to you know, bring those things together. How do we you know, design systems that um, have high throughput for data movement? Uh, we have a close partnership with NVIDIA and we've implemented their uh, proprietary NVLink technology um, on our Power9 servers. Um, and, you know, we're putting things out there um, from the research division um, that are optimized software packages and such to exploit kind of the hardware and the software and, and help data scientists create AI capabilities, um, you know, with rapid turnaround time and be able to study a lot more models and be able to study more data and ultimately be able to get higher accuracy AI solutions um, out of their research efforts. You wrote somewhere that the, the role has IBM expects it to be really multidiscipline, like you're, you know, this department does this and this group is building this and this group is doing this. And then, then that you, part of your charter is to figure out how all of that stuff can, can be combined in a new way. Am I, is that correct? Am I getting that right? Yeah, you're, you're getting it right. And, you know, you probably caught some of it in my answers to, you know, to your questions, right? Um, you know, I, I work on a lot of things and my team works on a lot of things that um, are about sort of cross-stack optimization. Um, and, you know, we sit in the research division, but I work very closely with our development organizations. And so that's another element of, you know, kind of interdisciplinary. So interdisciplinary in terms of the technologies, hardware, software, AI combined together, um, and then interdisciplinary in some sense across the business. Um, you know, we work on things, for example, where um, we uh, create a research technology. We work to, um, you know, benchmark it in some way so people can understand the, you know, the quality or the, the order of magnitude of improvement that we've gotten. And we'll go after, you know, getting 30, 40, even 50x improvements relative to, you know, compute time for, for previously published AI problems. Um, but we don't stop at the point of having just a research publication. We, we partner with our development organization um, and transfer that over. They put it out in technology preview for people to try um, and then ultimately turn that into a product. So um, that's sort of another dimension of kind of the, the interdisciplinary nature is kind of inter-business unit role that I play in, in trying to help our business and, and development organizations, you know, pluck out promising technologies from research. Um, and vice versa, um, to help our researchers, you know, see how to tackle problems uh, with our clients um, that are going to make a difference. You know, you talked about, you know, uh, opacity of models or um, we deal with, you know, folks that are, you know, have, wanting to tackle a bigger problem than their computer infrastructure will support. And so I spend time as well with our clients to try to help, you know, guide and steer our research um, in directions that's actually going to make a difference. I would say the vast majority of guests on the show who are working in the field have software backgrounds. <laughs> your PhDs in electrical engineering. How do you do you like think that that helps you um, when you're thinking about software solutions? Like, is it the same kind of thing, or is or or is it uh, doesn't really map in any useful way? No, I think it it absolutely maps, and I you know part of it is you know my own personality, but I think a lot of it is my electrical engineering you know, background and training. 
I remember my brother telling me uh, when I wasn't really sure if, you know, engineering was what I wanted to do the rest of my life. Um, my brother gave me the advice when I was in high school. He said, you know, go do electrical engineering. It's a degree in logic and you'll need logic for anything that you do, even if you, you know, want to stay in engineering. Um, and I think it was such a great piece of advice because, um, you know, coming from a hardware space, um, we're dealing with very, very complex structures and systems, uh, billions of transistors on a processor, terabytes of memory, um, petabytes of storage. We're dealing in, you know, big, complex, intricate systems, and you really have to think logically about, you know, what the interactions of all the components are. Um, and so, you know, myself and the members of my team that come from more of a hardware background, I think that um, we tend to, you know, look at AI from the perspective of what's actually happening under the covers. Um, you know, again, in the way I was answering a lot of your questions, I tend not to go into the philosophical, but a little bit more down to, you know, what's the math that's happening. Um, and from that, can we, you know, can we explain and reason about it? Can we understand how to make it go faster, change the outcomes? Uh, can we, you know, statistically manipulate the data or the outcome or things like that, right? So um, I think, you know, we tend to take a very... Um, sort of grounded and practical approach to trying to understand what's actually happening under the covers. And, and I think it's a, you need a balance. Absolutely. You need the people that are out there doing the theory, coming up with the new applications um, and the totally new types of AI. Um, but then, you know, you need to actually make it implementable, practical and runtime, other things like that. And so my team sits, you know, sits there and tries to, tries to draw that bridge. Yeah, one of my very best friends in college was um, an electrical engineering major, and he said anytime he went home for the holidays, all his relatives would have him like look at their ceiling fan that wasn't working anymore, <laughs> and uh, they always just assumed he could fix appliances. Does that ever happen to you? Oh, oh, it certainly does, and I'm no good at fixing appliances, so, uh, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, yeah, I can certainly relate to to your friend there. So can you talk about a project that, uh, like, what's a meaty problem that you've tackled and and use um, artificial intelligence to solve, or one that you work closely in. Like, give me if if you're the pragmatist, give me like a real world um, win that uh, that you've been involved in recently. Yeah, so you know, one of the things I'd love to talk about is actually a set of results that we published um, last year, but that is all kind of you know coming together for us in certain ways. Um, you know, there there was a set of of work that um, my team did last year that it really, you know, took a village um, to do this. Um, what it was specifically was that we wanted to tackle training of ImageNet 22K. So, um, you know, training of a massive data set of millions of images that had 22,000 different, you know, classes, a really complex problem. Um, but track, you know, you know, tackle that in a way um, so as to bring training time down into the domain of hours instead of days and weeks and things like that. Because when you think about, you know, training of, uh, you know, uh, medical diagnostics or, uh, you know, uh, information on, you know, damage to properties or, or things like that, there are certainly, you know, uh, things that have clear outcomes for people um, that, you know, are going to be related to processing of visual data with AI. Um, and the approach that we took was to kind of marry IBM's heritage from high-performance computing um, with then AI. And to draw that bridge between HPC and AI was something that um, we worked at for, for quite some time. Um, we found that it meant, um, you know, using systems that were, you know, designed with this, you know, high bandwidth um, link between the CPUs and GPUs. 
Um, it meant, you know, implementing new software. Um, we wrote a new high-performance communication library to keep all of the learners in the system in sync with each other. Um, and then it meant things around system engineering, you know, getting a large system of, you know, in that case, we did it with 256 GPUs, but getting a large system, you know, all working together robustly in touch was also, um, you know, system engineering task when we started it. And, you know, what we were able to do by bringing together all those different disciplines and, and leveraging tremendous, you know, IBM capabilities around everything from, you know, high performance system design to uh, low latency communication, but applying it and doing it differently because of AI, um, which is different than classical high performance computing, um, we were able to, you know, beat records. We were able to, you know, train a neural network um, to the highest published, um, you know, accuracy for, for that large ImageNet 22K classification problem. We were able to train it at higher efficiency in the system, uh, communication overheads and it's been uh, published. And so, and we were able to bring together all these different, you know, disciplines. And I think that was, you know, one of the things that kind of uh, embodied what we're trying to do um, in doing hardware and software co-optimization um, with systems, you know, specifically to AI. You know, I have this theory that if, if, if we didn't have any more advances in the technology, if computers didn't get any faster and we didn't collect data any better, there's probably 20 years worth of stuff we could do with just the technology applying it to all of these problems that enterprises have today. And, and I guess the reason we're not doing that is fundamentally it's a, it's a talent shortage. Do you think that that's going to rectify it? Or do you agree with that assumption? And do you think that's going to rectify itself and that we're going to have a flood of people who are kind of think in that, in that math that you're talking about? Uh, or is that going to be kind of, the, is that just the new normal? There's always going to be vastly more projects that we can envision than we have resources to do. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a fascinating question. I don't know that I have a, a real well-formed opinion on it, but but to kind of, you know, throw out a couple of thoughts, right? I think that we are seeing tremendous ramp in the training rates um, of people coming out in computer science, computer science enrollments from some data that I've seen um, look to be, you know, above where they were back in the dot-com bubble era, um, which is encouraging. Um, enrollments in things like machine learning classes are through the roof. Um, and the ability of online delivering methods like Coursera and, and open classes from the major schools, um, I think are really helping people, you know, whether or not they're already in the industry and need to, you know, transition to have this skill set or whether or not they're in, in school still and coming out. I think there's, a, you know, been... Uh, a tremendous, you know, improvement in rates of, of education of people along the lines of, you know, machine learning and deep learning and stuff like that. I do agree that um, there's a tremendous amount to be done and tremendous opportunity in applying even the known techniques to new data sets, right? I mean, we're seeing an absolute blossoming. I um, mean, you know, I threw it out there earlier, but we have a recent publication on use of deep learning to predict waves in the ocean, um, which you can imagine has you know, impact on everything from, you know, routes of ships to, you know, outcomes of, you know, um, aquaculture and farming and things like that, right? So, um, you know, that's a completely new type of, you know, data set, but yet a team, you know, went and looked at it and was able to apply AI to it. And certainly there's data all over the place like that, um, that you can envision people applying even existing AI techniques or tweaking them, um, but using, you know, current, you know, compute capabilities and such. Um, but I think as we look at, you know, the amount of opportunity in data, we certainly want to, um, you know, continue to improve um, the compute substrate. Um, and I think that we're seeing that, um, you know, the games of, you know, the initial accelerators around GPUs that people have done and, you know, the, the sort of more 
art of the possible type of capabilities that, that are starting to come out around more sort of neuromorphic type of computing um, are certainly indicating that we'll be able to continue to, you know, advance and improve compute as people, you know, branch out into these, you know, additional types of data that they want to explore. AI has a long history, and, and IBM with it, of, uh, of games. You know, Claude Shannon wrote in 1949 or 50 about how a computer could play chess. You had Deep Blue beating Kasparov in 97, Ken Jennings and, and Watson famously, uh, AlphaGo. You have uh, AI playing poker and bluffing and all of that. And I guess games work well with AI because they're a constrained rule and it's a point is a thing and all of that. What do you think is going to be the next watershed moment? Like, what's something that AI is going to do? Not not just kind of gradually, but there's going to be something that happens that is kind of, you know, the, a step function up into like, wow, the way that, you know, Go was. Even if you don't play Go, that was still a big deal. Can you think of kind of the next thing that's going to wow, It's going to capture the popular imagination? You know, I think that, um, you know, it's interesting because, you know, we, we always look at these things that are, you know, sort of gaming oriented. And I think, you know, personally, and this is, again, more of a personal opinion, but I personally think that um, there's really interesting things starting to happen that have to do more with um, affecting, you know, outcomes of people's lives or impacting things in the developing world, right? An app that helps a farmer in a developing world, you know, diagnose through a photograph, you know, what may be going wrong with their crop. Um, you know, so that they can, you know, know how to, you know, treat it with the right, um, you know, application of whatever needs to be done. Um, you know, an app that enables, you know, diagnosis of a skin lesion, you know, in a remote village, um, you know, and tells that person whether or not they need to find their way to a medical center. Um, the same thing, you know, in, in, you know, in developed countries, right, things that um, have better outcomes in, um, you know, determining, you know, treatments for certain types of aggressive cancers because the, the history, you know, is now, you know, digitally accessible as to, you know, what was useful with other people in similar circumstances previously, right? So I think that, you know, I personally, um, you know, feel like there's a lot of interesting things going on and starting to have more, you know, human outcomes, you know, in some of the AI. And I think it's an interesting shift within within the AI community also, you know, to start to look at these things that have, you know, a little bit more palpable human outcome as well. And so I'm personally, you know, very excited about some of those things that are happening in that space. Well, I'm, anybody who listens to the show knows, I, you know, I'm an optimist about the future. I'm, I believe that AI is the power to, you know, make better decisions. It's, a, it's, a, it's the power to be, actually be smarter. But one, there, you know, but there are three or four applications of it that, a, prag a pragmatist such as yourself, of course, probably thinks about. And one is that, you know, it, for the longest time, we all have been able to, to have privacy intact because, you know, no matter where you are, Big Brother can't watch everybody at once. And with this technology, when it can read every email and understand every phone conversation, even read lips, which it can do, you know, very well now, which would turn, you know, any camera essentially into a listening device. It really, the, the sorts of big data tools that we develop to, to do all kinds of the good things you were just talking about with that technology can also be used essentially to invade everyone's privacy and track and, you know, build profiles on, you, you know, it all does that, is that a legitimate concern about the application of the technology? And, and is it, is there even a potential answer to that? Or is it like, well, no, that genie's out of the bottle. You know, it's interesting. I think that, you know, one of the, you know, 
we're really trying to take a, a proactive approach to, to a lot of these things. And, um, you know, certainly in, you know, without taking any sort of a corporate stance on it, but again, just, you know, personal observation, there seems to have been a bit of a shift in definition of privacy as we look at, you know, the, the more recent generations, um, you know, but, but I think another, you know, another aspect of that is sort of, you know, who has my data, what is it being used for, um, you know, what is the provenance, uh, you know, of these, you know, decisions that are being made and things like that. And so, you know, one of the things that, you know, we, we recently been talking about is the use of blockchain, for example. Um, how does that relate into AI, which is probably not where you expect me to go, but, but to sort of, you know, thread that for a minute, right? So there's a question of, you know, um, you know, who is using my data and how and, and such like that. But if you think about the ability of, of blockchain to, you know, provide a capability to, um, you know, understand, you know, who has what data, how is it being used and to track things. Um, you know, we've um, started to demonstrate, you know, use cases recently um, that that intersect the two. Um, and so you can imagine, you know, understanding um, the flow of information as it relates to, you know, something having been characterized by an AI model and the flow of, you know, use of personal information, other things like that. And so I think that there are technologies, you know, and mitigations and such, you know, that can be that can be put in place, especially from an you know an enterprise perspective. And we can leverage things, um, you know, from other spaces, um, you know, obfuscation of personal data, um, while still being able to, you know, create a valid AI outcome. Um, tracking of how data is being used through, you know, things that um, are like blockchain, other technologies like that. So I think there are, there are certainly, you know, mitigation actions that can be put in place. Right. Should, right. Should, should people, you know, be able to, I'm with you. So when, when you have, you have all of these applications you were talking about, about empowering people, um, you know, making, giving everybody access to diagnosing diagnosis tools or, you know, a, a county extension agent, like in your, all of, all of the, all of the amazing applications you were talking about. Do you think that we are underway for those to happen or like, do you think market forces are going to eventually produce all of that stuff that you're talking about that, that change these outcomes for uh, people around the world? Yeah, I think, I think we're absolutely, you know, underway with, with those things. And, um, you know, there, there are many, there are many ways in which, you know, we're trying to, you know, influence, you know, those kind kind of things in the sense of also, you know, putting out tooling and such for, um, people to be able to create their own solutions. So we just launched something called Power AI Vision, which is a, a pipeline for someone who doesn't um, necessarily have, you know, the incredibly deep, you know, uh, PhD level uh, data science experience, you know, to be able to create a solution within the visual domain based on on their data. Um, you know, it's it's a download and go kind of environment, great GUI, all that other kind of stuff. Um, and people can create AI models that are optimized for, you know, their unique data, you know, in order to create these kind of outcomes. And, um, we see, you know, folks engaging with these, you know, higher level tools and such to, to create, you know, in some cases, pretty unexpected and wonderful solutions um, across different spaces, you know. And so um, from that perspective, I think that, you know, some of the things that, you know, that we're putting out, you know, from that perspective and perspective of, you know, cloud-based capabilities such as Watson Studio that enable people to develop their AI function, uh, the Power AI Vision tooling that I just mentioned. Um, you know, you put those things out, you put them in people's hands, and they're able to, you know, customize um, to determine, you know, everything from, you know, the ripeness of a banana to, you know, the fungus on a leaf or things like that. 
um, and that really kind of equipped people to to create their create their own create their own solutions and you know do these things like like tackle some of the um, you know sort of field agent kind of kind of functions that we were talking about. And do you think that I mean you've heard the story about the cucumber sorting AI machine? No, that particular so. one, but I can imagine. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, this 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 AI researcher had uh, his parents in Japan. Uh, grew cucumbers and his mother would spend all day sorting them based on four factors, uh, size, color, bumpiness, and I forgot the other one. And using um, a Raspberry Pi and a Linux box and, and so forth, you know, he built an um, and Arduino, built a device that would sort them and do it all automatically. Uh, of course, that's a special case because this is somebody who, who's deep in those tools. Do you think we're going to get to a case? Because it sounds like the world you're talking about are the tools are going to, the tools to actually do things like that are going to be, I don't know, as easy as uh, writing a macro in Excel or something, that it will be, that it will be accessible to not only non-data scientists, but non-programmers. Do you think we're heading in that direction? Yeah, I think we are. I mean, as I mentioned, you know, the, the, you know, one, one thing that, you know, I'd refer you to, to take a look at, you know, is this, this new thing that we put out called Power AI Vision. It, it certainly, you know, is intend, intended for a subject matter expert, you know, someone that, you know, is familiar with some particular visual domain and what the outcome should be. Um, but it enables them to create a deep learning model without having um, either coding or deep learning expertise. And so, you know, there's still a subject matter expert, you know, someone that's able to say that's a fungus of this type or something, or that's a, you know, cucumber of this level of ripeness. <laughs> um, um, but, you know, so there's a subject matter expert in the loop, but not a deep learning expert, right? So in the case of the, the cucumber example you were just talking about, I do recall that was from, you know, a year and a half to two years ago now that you mentioned it. But, um, you know, in the case, in that case, you know, the, the, the person knew, you know, what the uh, metrics were that they were looking for, right? So they knew what the sorting was supposed to be, um, but they didn't, you know, necessarily, um, you know, they wouldn't necessarily with, for example, this Power AI Vision tool set need to understand, you know, how to create, you know, a particular neural network to target those things. They would have a higher level um, kind of clicker level um, GUI in order to, you know, be able to, you know, create a neural network um, given that they know, you know, what the features are that they're that they're trying to look for. Well, I we've we've actually uh, I just looked at the clock. We're we're uh, out of time on the show. I want to think if people want to follow you and keep up with what you're doing, Hillary. How do they do that? Absolutely, my Twitter handle is Hillary Hunter H I L L E R Y. Last name is Hunter, um, and folks are willing to follow me there. Um, and um, that's probably the best way to to keep in touch. Well, thank you so much for uh, taking the time. It was, a, it was a lot of fun. Yeah, it was a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much. If you enjoyed this episode of Voices in AI, please check out the other ones. And in addition, Byron Reese hosts another podcast about AI called the AI Minute. Every day, it's a minute or two of daily reflections about AI. It's available wherever you find your podcast of choice. And in addition, it's an Alexa skill. So it can be part of your flash briefing every day if you own an Alexa device.